Hello, and welcome back to the Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and I have a little bit of a different episode for you today. Over the summer, I've been working for Bernie Moreno's U.S. Senate campaign for the state of Ohio to replace sitting Senator Rob Portman, who will be retiring at the end of this term. Bernie is one of the candidates running to replace him, and he sat down with me for an interview last week. We had a great conversation about why he's running and what's at stake in this election. Enjoy the episode. All right, Bernie Moreno, thank you so much for being, uh, being, coming on and uh, agreeing to be uh, interviewed by one of your, uh, one of your interns. And uh, for those of you uh, out there who don't know Bernie Moreno uh, and the predominantly English audience, uh, what is your story and why are you running for U.S. Senate for Ohio? Yeah, so my story, and I'm going to stick to it, is <laughs> that uh, I was born in Columbia, South America, uh, moved here when I was a kid, uh, learned English, became a U.S. citizen, uh, spent a lot of time studying for that citizenship test, and uh, became, uh, went to uh, the University of Michigan to go to school to be close to the auto business. Uh, started as an intern at General Motors, uh, got married right out of college, met my best friend and been married for 32 years, four amazing grown kids, and uh, realized the corporate world really wasn't for me. Too much bureaucracy, too many meetings about meetings. So out of the blue, I met a car dealer from Boston who at the age of 25 uh, took a bet on me, uh, asked me to run one of his dealerships, even though I'd never worked in a car dealership in any capacity in my life. Uh, did that, be, that store became his most profitable dealership in his company, helped him grow from six dealerships to 55. And about 16 and a half years ago, Mercedes asked me to buy what they uh, termed as probably the most underperforming dealership in the country. Truth be told, it was the only dealership I could have ever imagined buying because I didn't have money to even buy that one, let alone a bigger one. So sunk every cent I had, and including my sister's college tuition money, uh, into that deal. Had to pay her back in four months, which I was happy to report I did. And uh, uh, built a billion dollar company in the auto business, uh, grew to 30 different brands, uh, 15 locations, four states, thousands of people that worked in the company. Uh, then I knew in my heart, I always wanted to be in the technology business. Uh, cars were 51% of my passion, technology is 49. So I did cars first, uh, saw blockchain technology coming out, uh, wanted to do a tech company in Cleveland, but knew I couldn't do the car dealerships and the tech company. So sold the car dealerships. Started a tech company. Everybody thought I was crazy. Crazy because I was chasing technology called blockchain. Crazy because I was building a tech company in Cleveland. And crazy because I was taking millions of money, millions of my own money to start this company. Did that. Happy report. That company just today we announced we had our final, uh, our, our, our last Series A uh, funding of $8.5 million from outside investors. And it puts a company worth $45 million, which is great. We now have revenue. Uh, and we are going to just grow like crazy from here. So really excited about that. So it brings me to this conversation. Yeah, and at the same time, you're running a Senate campaign. <laughs> no, 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 all that, that, all that is uh, up until now. And the Senate campaign has only been four, a little over four months. And the reality is I saw, I've seen this country had a little bit left, a little bit left, a little bit left. But really, in the last year and a half, it took a giant leap left. And in the last six plus months of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer out to destroy the foundational elements of this country has taken a giant swing left. Uh, they've been hijacked by the radicals in their party, AOC, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Ilhan Omar, Alina Presley, Cory Bush, people who don't have the same vision of America that you and I do. So for me, this Senate seat's important because we have to retake power in DC, have to set this ship straight again. And if we don't do that, we'll hit an inflection point where we won't recognize the country that we live in in five to 10 years. And I'm not, I'm not prepared to let that happen and not uh, at least take a role, active role in helping change that. And the reason I have to do it, at least I felt I had to uh, feel like I have to do it, 
is because I'm so sick and tired of the same politicians who do one thing and say another, that have actually no track record, that when push came to shove, when they had to make difficult decisions, they didn't do it. Uh, but they talk a good game when they're running for office. So for me, this is what this campaign is all about. Well, and you're obviously a political outsider spending most of your time sort of in the, in the private sector. And uh, so how have you found this new experience of campaigning for the first time? It's, ups it's upside down than anything else I've ever imagined. Uh, if you uh, are interviewing for a job, right? For example, with me or anybody else in your career, that you're not going to only be able to tell people what you're going to do. You have to show people what you've done. It's the common interview question. It's interview question 101. Tell me an example of where you've done that in your previous life. Show me an example of leadership before, right? We've all been through those interview questions, right? Except in politics. They never ask that. And, and I, I, my plea to voters in Ohio and elsewhere is please ask your candidates to demonstrate where they have shown leadership in the areas in which they're saying they're going to do things or have policies. You'll find that almost all of them have nothing to say except garbage cliches. And what does that tell you? They're empty suits. They don't actually have ever had to accomplish anything in their life. And it's probably why they chose politics. Uh, that's been my biggest disappointment in watching this unfold over the last four months. And on the Republican side for this election, it's a, a bit of a crowded field. What separates you from the other the other candidates uh, in this sort of five five uh, five candidate field? I'm the only one who's not a lawyer. That should be an automatic uh, uh, winning uh, uh, message right there. <laughs> right? If you if you know anything about business, uh, and you bring a lawyer in when you don't want a deal to happen, you bring a lawyer in when you want to mess things up. So I'm happy to be, I'm the only one that didn't go to law school, right? That's number one. Number two, I'm the only one who's actually ever created a business. Uh, others have, uh, have all they've done is either been political operatives, perennial career, career candidates, uh, authors, celebrities, uh, but nobody who's actually ever created employment uh, that benefited the community and benefited others. I'm the only one who's uh, been awarded for community service at the level that I have. I'm the only one that actually created scholarship programs for students that had real impact, as opposed to just writing a check to their favorite place so they can get a you know a little banquet in their honor. I actually reformed uh, scholarship programs at Tri-C, did the same thing at CSU, chaired those boards, chaired, uh, served on many other nonprofit boards, not for the public recognition, but for actually making real change in those institutions. Mm. And earlier you, you mentioned uh, an inflection point in, a, in sort of the history of our country and uh, possibly hitting a, a point of no return. And uh, a recent Pew Research poll uh, done in 2020 found that a quarter of Democrats say that GOP policies are an existential threat to the well-being of the country. And then uh, a third of Republicans said the same thing about Democratic politics. Have we already reached that point? Is there, is there a way back? Is polarization... Uh, has it gone too far or are you still optimistic about the future? I'm, al I'm always going to be optimistic about the future. and I'm always going to be optimistic about America. On our worst day, we're three times better than the next best country. We always have to remember that. In terms of Democrats, listen, they, 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 uh, they're, um, they watch CNN and MSNBC and think it's news. Uh, conservatives tend to watch Fox News and read conservative outlets and know that those are opinions. Uh, and that's the big difference. Uh, the reality is that the Democrats have gotten to the point where they only care about what offends people. That's all they care about. This is offensive. That's offensive. This is wrong. This, these words uh, uh, bothered me. This word triggered me. 
they have abandoned policies. So I think if you have a debate with your favorite Democrat, your favorite liberal friend, whether that's your best friend from high school or college or your next door neighbor or somebody you work with, if you have the conversation focused strictly on policy, you'll see that Republicans and conservatives win 100% of the time. Let's take, for example, this infrastructure bill. Listen, one of the fundamental purposes of the federal government is to provide us infrastructure, roads, bridges, highways, ports. The difference is, do we want to mortgage the future of our country in a reckless way? We've already spent almost $10 trillion, $10 trillion to try to fix a public policy disaster, which was these lockdowns. Do we need to spend another $5 trillion on real infrastructure plus uh, whatever social infrastructure, whatever that means? But the reality is what we should be doing is saying, hey, we have to be fiscally responsible and let's take that money that we've already allocated reallocate that to highways, roads, and bridges, but not spend new money. The biggest tax that policymakers can put on their citizens, the number one tax is inflation. It is the most predatory tax that exists. This idea that you go to the grocery store, you go to the gas station, you go to your favorite restaurant, and you see prices climbing, you see your take-home pay, increasing what you're happy about, but the ability to buy things decreasing at exponentially higher rates. That's inflation. And what they are doing is unleashing an inflation environment that we haven't seen since Jimmy Carter. We cannot go back to those days. I'm actually afraid we're already there and it's going to take an enormous amount of will. And it's going to take voters to vote conservatives from the bottom of the ballot all the way to the top of the ballot, not only this election in 22, but also in 24. And we will look back at this period of time and say, wow, those were some tough years. But you know what? We set the ship straight and we got the country back in shape and we needed to go through that process so that we realized how good we had it in America. So I'm optimistic that in five years we'll be there, but man, it's gonna be a painful two or three years, I'm just telling you, especially for young people, especially for people who are, are in the uh, uh, working or middle class, that they're going to see some very, very tough, rough waters ahead. Uh, and again, the irony of all this, these are democratic liberal policies that benefit the wealthy. I was at an event once in Martha's Vineyard where I go every year for what I call liberal immersion. And uh, Senator Markey, who's, uh, if you don't know him, he's AOC's lapdog in the Senate. Old guy, been there forever, right? As a, but kind of fashions himself as the Senate's AOC, which is kind of funny. He's about three times her age. But anyway, he said, if you want to live like a Republican, you got to vote like a Democrat. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's his audience? Who's his audience? Is it you, a student out of college? Is it somebody who's working at a factory? Is it somebody who's just barely making ends meet? Or is his audience saying that that wealthy person that made all kinds of money, has a vacation home in Martha's Vineyard, flew there on a private jet, and saying, hey, listen, if you want to keep this, you got to vote for my policies as a Democrat. And, and you know what? It's the most honest thing I've ever heard a Democrat say, because it's true. Their policies in the name of helping working people, in the name of helping minorities, actually benefit the wealthy, the elites, the hypocriticals, the ones that uh, made all kinds of money themselves and then preached to all of us how we're bad. So that's it, it was, again, the mo moment of clarity for me when I heard some uh, when I heard Marky say that. In that same vein, there are a lot of criticisms, especially uh, especially international people who don't understand our political system and how much money uh, from sort of corporate interests, PAC interests, uh, how much money can in invade our politics and, and, uh, and influence our candidates. 
but you've decided uh, not to take PAC money. What went into that decision, and uh, how does that work? Just for the just for the English audience that might not understand those sort of uh, finite details of American elections. Sure, it's about five million dollars per per uh, representative is spent on lobbying down in D.C. And uh, this corporate PAC money, union PAC money, special interest money that every single candidate in this race is taking from Tim Ryan. That's basically flooded with that to uh, my unfortunately my Republican opponents that none of them will disavow uh, this corporate PAC money, this union PAC money, this special interest money. They won't disavow it because they need it. And what it is, is the ultimate quid pro quo. I'm going to give you this money in exchange for A, B, C, and D. I, well, there's one candidate in this race that's already shown he's willing to do that, that he did uh, special favors for donors that bore, were borderline illegal. In fact, his donor ended up in jail. And you ask yourself, who are they looking out for? They're looking out for you, who's listening to this podcast, or are they looking out for their rich buddies? I just won't do it. That's what they hated about Donald Trump. He couldn't be bought. Uh, Donald Trump called it a rig system, called it the swamp. He's right. But you got swamp creatures running saying that they're anti-swamp. Think about that. So if you've already violated the trust of your voters by doing these special favors, almost virtually illegal favors for special interest donors, wealthy people who wanted you to compromise your office and your position for the sake of getting donations, you've already done that. What moral clarity do you have around saying that you're going to go down to D.C. and break up this swamp? It's just the traditional baloney that we hear from politicians, and I'm sick of it. That's why I'm doing this. I should just go live my life. I've spent 54 years getting to this place, 54 years where I I sweated, uh, didn't know sometimes how I was going to make bills, didn't know sometimes how I was going to pay taxes, didn't know sometimes how I was going to meet payroll. And now I finally have the financial freedom and independence from that 54 years of working my, you know what, off. But this country's given me every opportunity on earth to have this success. And this is my way to give back to that country and to send those hypocritical, uh, say one thing, do another politicians back to the private sector. Let them see what they can do when they're not on a government paycheck. Right. Guys like Tim Ryan have never known that. Think about that. They've never known what it's like to have to work outside of receiving a guaranteed government paycheck. And they preach to the rest of us that they want to cut workers in on a deal. Give me a break. They've never done anything in their life that cut a worker in on a deal. They've never even employed a worker, promoted a worker, improved that worker's family's life ever. So they're that they're preaching to the rest of us. We got to get rid of those people. We got to bring the power back to the people. What the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution stood for a government by the people, for the people, by the people. That's what we got to get back to. And uh, just to just to bring the the interview to a close here on that sort of vein of of uh, of public service, uh, you said uh, at events I've I've heard it uh, numerous times that you're only running for two terms and that you are very much for term limits. Uh, why is that? The founders had in mind uh, the opposite of what you see at Joe Biden. Diane Feinstein, uh, Tim Ryan. That's not what they imagined. Alexander Hamilton was 18 years old when the Declaration of Independence was signed. 18 years old. He spent 15 years with James Madison and John Jay writing the Federalist Papers that resulted in our Constitution. These were young visionaries that understood how difficult democracy was going to be. They had just lived through totalitarianism that none of us even understand. And they were willing to sign their death warrant to change this country. Uh, They didn't know they were going to win. In fact, I bet they thought they were going to lose. And yet they did it in the name of liberty and freedom. And what they imagined was not somebody 
who would milk their life off of the public dole. Go to public office and then monetize that power. Janet Yellen, $7.2 million just last year in speaking fees from the very banks that she's supposed to regulate. That would make Alexander Hamilton probably sick to his stomach thinking that, that we have a government that allowed that. So this for me is about inspiring not only uh, other future business leaders, but others who never would have thought that they'd go into public service, who actually accomplished things in their lives, who built businesses, who went through adversity, know what it's like to actually really serve their country, that go to DC, serve there, and go home, right? 12 years is a long time. You need fresh thinking in DC. Spending more than 12 years in DC, there's not, it's not a recipe for sane people to do that. It just isn't. It's not what the founders had in mind. And we, the people, have to raise our hands and say, enough. This is our government. The government doesn't belong to the special interest. It doesn't, evolve, it doesn't belong to big corporations. It, evolve, it belongs to every individual voter. And that's what I hope to inspire is a movement to, uh, to take the, what Donald Trump started and continue it and move it along. Uh, so that people really get, we get the government back. We got to get our country back. We have to get back to being the true democracy that our founders envisioned, not this perverse uh, country that looks a lot like China, Cuba, Venezuela, that the left has in mind. We, I will fight uh, to the better end to make sure that that does not happen. And that's what this campaign is all about. Well, that seems like a, a great note to end on there. Thank you very much, Bernie Moreno. And I hope to, uh, I hope to come back in a, a year and a half and interview uh, Senator Moreno. I appreciate that. And thanks for the hard work that you're doing. And uh, listen, we need all the help we can get. Go on BernieMoreno.com. Get involved. If you're willing to invest in a campaign, certainly do that. Volunteer. We need people all over the state amplifying this message. So thank you. Thank you very much.